Being an expert sucks. As a teacher of spiritual intelligence and emotional health, I get cornered into being the guy who has all the answers. I'd like to take this opportunity to make a confession. I don't. What I do have are convictions. I have theories. I have questions. I find myself looking around and I'm like, we can't stay here. Stop setting up your tent. We can't stay here. Through my journey, it's become evident that being a participant is no longer enough. It's time to become reformers. These are my confessions. To get deeper in this conversation, visit MikeMayashiro.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. I'm excited for you to get to hear my interview with Andrew Kerbs. He's the brilliant mind behind the account Deconstruct Everything on TikTok and Instagram. Um, Andrew is spicy and intelligent and compassionate. I love the work that he's doing. In this episode, we talk about um, conscience-minded deconstruction as well as like judgment day trauma or religious trauma in general. I think you'll get a lot out of this. I hope you enjoy it. Let's get into it. All right, everybody. Hello and welcome back. Welcome back to my YouTube channel. Welcome back to Confessions of a Reformer. Um, I've got a special guest with me today. I've been following this guy on social media for, I don't actually know how long. It's been a while. Um, but recently we got connected and started talking more and what have you. And I'm just very excited to get to sh have him share with you his end of the world and what's going on over there. So um, I have with me today, Andrew Kerbs. Um, he's a therapist and a religious trauma coach, um, but he's also a content creator on social media, specifically in the realm of deconstruction. So his Instagram handle is deconstruct everything, right, Andrew? Yep, that's correct. Yep. Um, and so I'm very excited to have Andrew share his story and his background and just what he does. And then also, you know, the things that he discovered along the way in his journey. Um, I think we have a lot of overlap, a lot of things in common, but I can't wait for you guys to get to hear from someone else and their process, their experience. We don't have any background in common. We've never met in real life. Um, but I think there's a lot of overlap here. And so I, I feel like Andrew's got a lot to share that's really relevant to a lot of our journeys. So um, Andrew, to kick us off, do you want to just like say hi and introduce yourself and anything that I missed that you feel is pertinent to who you are and all that? Uh, no, that's great. Thank you. Um, no, I'm just honored to be here. And um, I appreciate you inviting me to be on this. I, I know I've been on, in, on Instagram for a couple of years now, and I can't remember how long I followed different people. I've known of people for a long time, but it kind of, I lose, I lose track of that. So, um, it full disclosure, it's like, I've known of you for a while. I don't think it was until I saw some clips. I forgot who shared them, but of you and Joe Lumen talking that I think that was when I followed you and became more aware of who you were. Um, the, the full disclosure part was I knew of you simply because you were that guy with the mustache. <laughs> That's what I knew you as. Bye. So, so, um, yeah, but no, it's, it's great to be here. And um, yeah, I, I was, I, I forgot, was there another question that you had behind that? <laughs> well, just, um, I, you know, just kind of, I guess it'd be, uh, maybe be helpful for people to know, like, what do you do? What are you doing? In yeah. Your life? yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So I, so currently religious trauma coach is probably the best way you could describe what I do. Um, for all intents and purposes, it's, I mean, very similar to just what I did as a therapist, but I am now I, I am actually letting my licenses expire. Actually, I think the last one did expire, in fact, just a month ago. Um, so I am no longer in the world of 
professional counseling, which is what my master's degree is. That's what it, it's in. Um, per, clinical mental health counseling is what my graduate degree is in. Um, and I've had that for a few years. That was the kind of the field I started in. Um, I mean, long story short, I ended up kind of going into more of a private practice role, doing this with religious trauma. I work, and by the way, I work with the Center for Trauma Resolution and Recovery and CTRR. We, they do have a presence on Instagram as well, but essentially I'm doing my own thing now. We're like, I'm my own boss. I'm doing religious trauma work full time. And it's kind of like, it's that niche that I never knew was my niche. So anyway, I am excited. I'm very excited to be doing this. Like I, um, I've been doing it full-time for right at a year now. Um, and it's definitely surpassed my expectation as far as, um, it just being just working. I mean, for all the different reasons, making enough money to support myself, my fiance, like, you know, not being in danger of being evicted because I can't pay bills. Like it's, and then just, um, having time for myself, self-care, just that whole work-life ba balance, work-life boundaries. It's, it's been great, honestly. So but yeah, that's what I do now full-time exclusively. And then yes, I make content on Instagram and TikTok, both um, under the same name, Deconstruct Everything. Nice. Love it. And Andrew's kind of new to the TikTok world. Yes. I Yes, um, I am very new and <laughs> actually just had my first post go viral like two days ago. <laughs> nice. What was it about? Um, <laughs> it was about a... Um, basically it was making fun of Donald Trump. He had a rally here in Wilmington, North Carolina, like three or four days ago, where he accidentally said, um, we need to keep our country gay. And um, he meant to say, great, I'm assuming. But then he just, you know, started stumbling over his words. It, it was hilarious. Anyway, I, so I took the original video somebody had posted and then just did a stitch onto that. And last I checked, I had almost like 300,000 views and got like a thousand followers just since that. So I kind of, springboarded into the TikTok world. I haven't really done too much on it as far as like length of time is concerned, but nice. that wasn't, I mean, that was, that was a nice, nice little jump. <laughs> That's awesome. I love it. That's like, okay, well, so I'm curious, I'm going to ask you this question and then I'm assuming there's an immediate, like more present answer, but then I think it'll probably springboard us into your origin story. How did we get here? You know? Yeah. So my question is, um, Religious trauma coach. How did you get into that? So feel free to answer that question and then, you know, tell us your story. Where'd you come from? How'd you get here? I want to hear all the things. Yeah, totally. So how did I get into religious trauma? Um, so I have been unpacking my own religious trauma for a few years, like consciously doing it for a few years. I mean, obviously I think I've, it's been part of my own personal work and healing for many years. Um, but same with like deconstruction. When I started actually doing it. I didn't know what that term was. I had never heard such a thing. And in my view, I still thought I was just backsliding and drifting out of the church and that whole thing. That was in 2014. Nice. Um, I had actually decided back in 2013 that I was going to go to seminary. Now, my background is Seventh-day Adventism. And I was going to go to seminary, which anyone who's an Adventist knows that that means you're going to probably go to Andrews University up in Berrien Springs, Michigan. That's where the Adventist seminary is, at least in this country. Andrew, uh, being Adventist, does that mean you're a vegan? Well, I grew up vegetarian. Okay. Um, so yes, they do very much emphasize the health message. That being said, there's a lot of diversity in the denomination. There's a ton of people that 
they eat whatever they want and do whatever they want. But yeah, there, there is a health message that historically is pretty important in, within Adventism. I mean, they also have things similar to Mormonism and that like no caffeine and certain things like that. Mm-hmm. So I grew up um, no caffeine, no meat. So I, we, we, did, we did do like eggs, uh, dairy, that sort of thing. But um, so vegetarian, pretty strict vegetarian, but until I was like 16 and then I could, then I decided to start eating McDonald's and be a rebel, I guess. I don't remember exactly how that happened, but. <laughs> the affection started early. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> okay, sorry, <carry> on. <laughs> Oh, no, you're good. Um, so yeah, I was going to go to seminary. Um, I had, there's also a, like I, the point I'm making, like I was like, I mean, I was completely like all out for my Christian faith, my Christian identity being like, not only just being a part of this movement, but like, like completely selling out for completely leading it, doing whatever I could. So by, you know, naturally I I thought, well, I guess getting my MDiv and becoming a minister would be the next step in that progression. Um, Cause I was already leading Bible studies. Um, Adventism is also real big on Bible prophecy and that whole thing. So, you know, I was doing Bible studies on Daniel and Revelation and other things of that nature, you know, like end time events and all of that. And um, so, and then, oh, also I had written several articles that were published in their big flagship journal, the the Adventist Review, um, which surprisingly pays better than you might think for being a church journal. But at any rate, that's beside the point. Um, so actually, I, that's one of the things I am technically a published writer because of that. And yet I also cringe because I am a very much a creative and I artist and I love writing. And part of me cringes to think that so far my real writing credits are from that journal. Like, right. Yeah, I'd rather not revisit that. But anyway, <laughs> so yeah, I was all about it. Um, long story short, I did not go, obviously. Um, it was more for financial reasons initially. And so I was like, well, I still want to do something with a graduate degree of some kind that can be basically used to help people. I was not prepared to be leaving the church or anything yet, but I did find a local university that had an accredited program for counseling. It was a recently expanded, it was like a satellite campus for a university here in North Carolina. And it was for, you know, a master of arts in clinical mental health counseling. And so I enrolled there. Um, that all worked very seamlessly, unlike the whole trying to get into seminary piece. So I'm like, maybe that's a sign. I don't know. So that's what I did. Um, yeah. So full-time student for two and a half years, got that degree and uh, became a therapist, which is a very high burnout field. If those of you who work in mental health as clinicians know this, those who don't, well, just take my word for it. It's um, underpaid, overworked. It is about the lowest paid master's degree in the country. Um, and it's also one of the more difficult master's degrees to get It's 60 plus credit hours. That's when there's like an internship and a practicum and licenses and tests. And you have to pay out of pocket for all of that on top of the degree itself that you're already paying to get. Um, and anyway, and yeah, then my first job was a community mental health agency job. So, and this is in Southern Appalachia. So, you know, a lot of, um, it's Medicaid that I'm having to deal with. And then it's a lot of low income, clients that I'm dealing with. And honestly, I love them. I, I worked a lot with kids, a lot of kids that were referred for, through juvenile justice. So I don't want to speak uh, like disparage, disparagingly of my clients. Like, I, honestly, those are some of the best people I've ever worked with. But you have to understand these agencies are like underfunded, we're overworked, we're getting dumped on a lot of people are sent to us, 
because the Department of Social Services are, is telling them they have to, or the Department of Juvenile Justice is telling them they have to, or some other circumstance where a judge is telling people like, yeah, if, if you want to keep your kids, if you want to stay out of trouble or whatever, like mental health counseling. Um, so I got to see a lot of people like that, people that did not want to actually see me at all. Um, but honestly, that was kind of fun. It was like a challenge. I just rolled with it. Like, cool. You know, like I'm not, you know, I guess I was pretty good at that, I guess it, but it was still stressful, very high burnout. A lot, saw a lot of clinicians come and go. Um, and yeah, so I, I was there for like maybe a year before I moved across the country to Oregon. Very briefly, I was in Oregon, but that job also didn't turn out to be what I was hoping that it would be. And so I stayed there only five months. And from there came back, not all the way back to the East Coast, but to Chicago, that area. That's where my, uh, that's where my fiance is from. And so we were living there and I was working, I initially worked a mobile crisis in uh, the West, Northwest Chicago suburbs. Um, that was a good experience, but again, a burnout experience. And uh, my most recent job that I did before I started doing this full time on my own was I was a school therapist and I was working at a school that specialized in children on the autism spectrum. Um, now, there were also children that had some other um, cognitive delays or developmental issues or um, like ADHD. So uh, like anything that would fall under the umbrella of neurodiversity, like we, we, we specialized in all of that. Um, so I did a lot of that, that not, I honestly love that job. And we came back to North Carolina actually because my fiance's job relocated. And I just kind of took that as the opportunity to like, let's just see where this thing goes. Cause, um, so religious trauma, I was already dabbling part-time with this center for trauma resolution and recovery. And I actually only knew about it because of Instagram, because Dr. Laura Anderson, um, if you, if you know who she is, um, she's um she's on instagram she anyway and she was she'd actually reached out to me because she knew i was a therapist asking if i knew of any other therapists who might be interested and in also working as basically a religious trauma practitioner or coach um and i didn't but i knew that that's what i i'd be open to doing that so <laughs> i was like yeah actually i'll do it um and so you know i was i had been unpacking and going to therapy and all of that for my own stuff for a while at this point um, so it's one of those things. Was oh, there yeah. something, so just in terms of your, your own personal process, when you say unpacking, are you talking about deconstruction or was that before? Um, yes, yes and no. So I'm all, curious, all the things. What, what catalyzed you to start asking the illegal questions or to start poking at things that were untouchable? Like what, why were you doing that? Mm, it's a good question. I'm trying to think the it's one of those things where I don't really have one big moment that I can point to, but lots of little moments that are scattered. Um, I would say one of the more recent moments, well, I say more recent, this is still years ago, but um, that really, it really was just the way the church was showing up in the community was basically just not, it was just absolutely not at all in accordance with what I felt they were being called to do or what I felt Christ would call them to do based on his life. Um, and so specifically what I mean by that, I think I actually might've made a post about this just the other day. Um, 
this feels like very deja vu right now, but um, basically my church that I went to in Western North Carolina at the time, they were doing a big renovation thing, like re renovating like the sanctuary, like the whole thing, but they weren't actually expanding. It wasn't anything like that. Um, but yeah, I think it, I think it topped a million dollars. I don't remember the exact price tag. Um, and long story short, when they were done, they actually had less sanctuary space. They, they literally didn't expand anything. They just were making it nicer for themselves, essentially. Um, and, you know, I mean, we're talking like sound systems and digital projectors and stained glass. I mean, like tens of thousands for each individual price tag for different things. And they sent out form letters to all everybody still currently on membership asking for money. And I had already not really gone to church for a while at this point, but, you know, I still got their form letters every now and then. And I got this letter. And, you know, this is like, I'm in the midst of working with these families that literally live in the same county as this church who are well below the poverty line, who are desperately trying to keep jobs, to keep appropriate living spaces so that they can keep their kids, like keep custody of their kids. Because obviously you need, it, you know, when suddenly when you have judges and social workers thinking that you maybe you're not fit to be a parent, it becomes very important that you have stable income stable job and that your house is clean and presentable and the reality is that's very difficult to maintain when you're living below the poverty line you can't keep a job and, and honestly not even through faults of their own it's just there's anyway there's so many other dynamics happening there but that's not the point of this the, but the point is though you know i'm working with these folks every day these and these are people that are like these aren't people in like some far-flung mission field that you have to you know save up ten thousand dollars even just to go rub shoulders with them like no they're literally just down your street but here we are dropping a million dollars to reduce space but have a more comfortable sanctuary space for all of our church people and so that i think really just pissed me off um i was already gone i um had already you know quote drifted out or whatever but it definitely was at that point that i knew i would sure as fuck not be going back at least not to that church um and it's funny because um, a lot of people, when it comes to deconstruction and knowing that I'm out of the church, they love the whole phrase, I'm so sorry the church hurt you. And honestly, that pisses me off because I'm like, the church didn't hurt me, but I did see the harm the church was doing or just the self-centeredness of it all. Yeah, definitely um, was done with that church. Absolutely done. You know, just witnessing that, I just knew that that was not something that I was going to, I, I couldn't in good conscience go back. And that's one thing I often stress with people is that it's, it's a, it was an issue. It was a matter of conscience, you know, like a lot of folks, I mean, there's so many um, accusations that we feel from people still in the church as to why you left or why you didn't come back or why you deconstructed or whatever. Um, most of them are completely false. Um, Cause yeah, definitely like that, that was one of the big, that was definitely one of the big watershed moments for me, at least determining that I would not be going back. Um, there were other reasons I might have initially kind of left. I mean, just like, for example, there were some people that I was involved with doing the Bible study stuff with that I just, quite frankly, didn't care for. I just didn't like them. Um, they were also people that I felt were really just kind of getting too, um, too political, but in a sense that I didn't see it as being congruent with, again, the life of Christ. And this is pre-Trump. So this, I'm talking like, this would have been, 
when I really started to sit here in this stuff, I guess it would have been shortly after Obama was elected again, the second time was probably when I really started noticing it. Um, so, cause I'm, I'm talking like 2012, 2013. And so, um, yeah, I mean, this was even before 2016 and 2017 where it became even worse, but I was noticing it many years before, even back with like, I guess it was the tea party movement was a lot of what was happening then. This was about a decade ago. Um, and so I, so kind of some of the same things that I think a lot of people have noticed, and those have been reasons they left the church now, when it comes to white nationalism, outright stuff that, that like, I, I guess I was actually starting to already see some of the, those movements and some of those narratives developing a decade ago, and it wasn't sitting very well with me. Um, and I guess this also is relevant. But I, I also have a degree in history before I got my master's. That's well, it's yeah, history degree, and I specialized in political social movements uh, in mid 20th century Europe. So in other words, fascism 101 is like I that I see that shit a mile away, and I was seeing that shit back way back. So just stuff that was not making me comfortable, especially not hearing it within my church. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, yeah, that's, that's, that's the gist of it for, yeah. for that. So anyway. that. That got you to a place where you're like, Hey, something's wrong. I'm not aligned with what's happening here. I might need to make some adjustments. I might need to not be part of this anymore. Were you having like a crisis of faith in some of that? Or was it mostly political? Um, at that point it was very political. And although these two things actually do kind of coincide, it was very political, but at the same time, I think it was turning into a crisis of faith and I maybe was in denial and didn't recognize it as being that for maybe another three years, three or four years. Because actually, as I also think back, there were some of the classes that I took then and some of the things that I began studying. Ironically enough, the class that really got me thinking on some of these pieces was called um, Introduction to Islamic Archaeology. And the professor, he was a really cool guy. Um, God, I cannot remember his name though, but he, he, um, he was, uh, I think he had got his PhD from the University of Chicago, but he was from, I believe he was from Israel, but he was fluent in Arabic, Hebrew, English, all, you know, a lot of languages, very, very, very um, intelligent, but very kind, really, really cool guy. I really appreciated him and his work. And that's what got me first looking into a lot of, I think, just different um, faith traditions other than Christianity, and not even just Judaism, but also, you know, Islam, and just all of those pieces, like the, all of those different movements that happened in Southwest Asia. And um, that, I think, also really started pulling me into a direction where I'm like, just, just realizing how much of... Um, the narratives that we have, at least especially in America and in American evangelicalism around Christianity are just, is this so misinformed and so Eurocentric? And so, yeah, yeah, anyway, just all of that. So I think I became, I started to become quite disillusioned with the whole thing at that point. And um, I, again, I can't really pinpoint it on any one event, but I, I, that was definitely in those years, that was definitely when I began to start seeing Christianity as a whole as potentially just at least in the at least in the sense that we see it today, the institution of just being complete bullshit. 
And, um, and then at that point, that was also when I very much started questioning the existence of God altogether. Um, Cause I think that was the other piece too, that a very personal piece that um, motivated me to leave or just, again, continue down that path of feeling very disillusioned and kind of just left, left behind was kind of how it felt was that there was, um, I won't say who they are because, but somebody, somebody who was very close to me had some grand testimony story about that, that verse from, um, I think it's Jeremiah, the, the whole, um, you'll seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart, that whole, I mean, I've heard so many people use that in their testimony in hindsight, but at any rate, this particular testimony really had struck me when I was younger. And so, yeah, I thought, well, if I, try hard enough, I absolutely will find God. And that's what I did for years. And until finally, it's like, the harder I tried, the harder I tried, the harder I tried, like, honestly, it's like the less I feel like I was fine, felt like I was finding the worse my mental health had become. And it was the weirdest thing um, that what I experienced because I could only best describe it as radio silence is how it felt. Um, another way I've described it is like, you know, you're praying so hard, you're trying so hard. It's just like you're talking endlessly on a phone conversation with a friend, right? And at some point the call dropped. You don't know when the hell it dropped, <laughs> but you're just talking, talking, talking. And then suddenly you're like, you stop, you pause, kind of like expecting them to say something or acknowledge something, nothing. Like, wait, what the hell? <laughs> like, hello? <laughs> And, and then it's like, well, shit, how long has the call been dropped? It's it, almost like that. It's like, okay, nobody's here. How long has it been this way? Has it always been this way? And then, yeah, kind of almost like disillusionment, but almost then embarrassment. And um, yeah. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I was still not willing or open to talk about it openly because, I mean, I was in therapy just, you know, for my, for just life in general. I think there's enough reasons to go to therapy, but then you add on top of it, like this grieving process of your faith disintegrating and not, and not realizing that's what had been happening. Um, anyway, and that, that hit me all in the middle of graduate school. Like I think the full weight of that, that realization and that grieving process. Mm. And so, but middle of grad school would have been, I guess, 2015, 2016 ish, somewhere in there. Yeah. Wow. It's a lot. <laughs> and it was all like, were you talking with people about what you were processing and thinking about or was it only happening in your therapy sessions or like were you even still not even as honest with yourself at that point about what you i were was definitely not as honest with myself um so definitely wasn't talking to anybody because i didn't know this community existed yet i did not know any other adventists who had left at least not in a way not in a sense where Yeah, no, actually, I just didn't know any. As I'm thinking back to it, I, I did. I simply did not. So that that is one thing that it's like. I'm. It's it it's cool now that I'm sitting where I am, looking back, and I you know I'm here, I'm alive, I'm doing well, like. I can find value in the journey, but the reality is, it was extremely lonely, and probably yeah, it's it's one of those things where I, I wouldn't wish that on anybody which then motivates me in doing the work that I'm doing now, you know, trying to create community, even though like maybe 75% of it sometimes feels like it's a sarcasm and 
shit posting. Um, but it's like, it's like creating that camaraderie and validation of like, no, what we went through was fucked up and I get it. I was there. Um, so yes, that's, that's why I keep doing what I'm doing. Cause like I'm forever more getting DMS from people like just saying something like they're like, holy shit. Like, you know, they're like, I never thought of it in those terms until you said that. But now that you say that, they're like, oh my God, like that, that was my life. That was my experience. That's exactly what I went through. That's exactly what I felt. Wow. Totally. Wow. So based on that journey and process, do you feel like, and I'm not interested in like, I'm not necessarily trying to box you. I more just want to kind of have an understanding of where you landed, where you ended up. Yeah. Yeah. You feel like that process landed you in becoming an atheist? I would say probably close to it. Um, so yeah, no, it's actually interesting. You, you bring that up. So I basically for all intents and purposes, yes. You know, um, now if you ask me like what I consider myself, I will always say a humanist. Um, and my reasoning is because I honestly think it's ridiculous to identify myself based on whether or not I believe something does or does not exist that quite frankly, I can't prove one way or the other. But I can prove that humans exist and I can prove that human suffering exists. And I can definitely prove human suffering exists all the more so because of religious indoctrination. Um, I don't know whether God exists or not, quite frankly. So it's like, and that since I'm a strong agnostic, I guess. Um, and even, and then even after that, I know then people will still push like, well, are you an agnostic theist or an agnostic atheist? I'm like, this is why I'm a fucking humanist. It's like, I don't know. It's like, I'm not going to waste my breath. Arg I'm not, I'm not state making an identity based around yeah. stupid hypotheticals. Like, I'm just not that. So yeah. Um, but, but no, I mean, for all intents and purposes, most people would view me as an atheist and they, they wouldn't be wrong, I guess. It's just that, um, I, again, I very much just, I don't really, I do not put any bandwidth into arguing that point. Um, and when you say you're a humanist, how would you define that for our audience, for people listening now who might not have a clear definition of what that sure. means? Yeah. Well, and for the purposes of my working definition just for my own identity and what I do is um, just being concerned with humanity. And again, the piece that, I mean, like I just said, like, I mean, I can measure and I can physically tangibly see like, the, you know, humanity is real. It's suffering is real. I see that the work I do can help alleviate that at least to a certain extent. And so, you know, that's my purpose, my identity, whatever is going to be around that. Um, when it comes to like the whole atheism debate, like God and whether or not God exists, it, that's one of those funny things. Cause like, I'm, I'm very, very comfortable at holding complex things that look like they oppose one another. And I don't feel like I need to have concrete answers because yeah, there is a part of me that obviously grew up as, I mean, a very hardcore Seventh-day Adventist. So, you know, theist. So there is a part of me like intuitively that feels like, oh, there's got to be a God. I don't know. Like there's, there's got to be. But then again, I recognize, yeah, and I grew up being conditioned to believe that. I also can recognize empirically. I don't feel that I have a shred of empirical evidence that would say that there is other than just circumstantial and hypothetical stuff. Like I understand the arguments that suggest there might be, but it's to me, it's still not concrete empirical evidence that anyway. So yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah. But, uh, but cool. honestly, I don't spend any energy worrying about it at mm. this point. Right. Thank you for sharing. And also, I forgot to make this statement, so I'm going to share it now. Um, <laughs> we all know this, but I'm going to say it just for the sake of 
continuity. I told Andrew he can say whatever he wants to say, however he wants to say it. I don't need him to land anywhere in particular, say it a certain way. I want him just to be able to be himself and say what he wants to say the way he wants to say it. If there's anything that's offensive or scary for any of us in hearing him, that's on us to work through, do with it as we will. We're adults, we get to work it out. I'm not interested in catering to a specific end or trying to get us to a certain like conclusion point. I want Andrew to just get to share his journey, his understanding, his perspective, his expertise, all that. So, all right, there's that. Um, cool. Okay, so you went on this journey. You started deconstructing because you saw some weird movement from your church. You're like, oh, that's that doesn't line up with what I see the Bible promoting or what I see the Jesus character like demonstrating in the world, right? So there feels like there's a significant enough disconnect here that I'm actually pulling away. And then it just started getting gaining momentum. You started going to therapy. You started processing out some of the trauma that you experienced in church. I'm curious, are you willing to share any of the things that came up for you in terms of like when you're coaching people in religious trauma, what were some of the things that you had to face? Obviously you talked about the million dollar building and you know, like the hypocrisy there, but was there anything else that was coming up for you religiously that you're like, Oh, this was traumatic for me and I had to work through it. Yeah. Um, there definitely are other pieces. I think so some of this, goes, I mean, this goes back to childhood. I mean, really just the fear of hell was one of the big ones for me. Um, and it's interesting because Adventists actually have a slightly different understanding of hell than mainstream, well, I say mainstream, that's not mainstream, mainstream evangelicals is what I'm trying to say. I know mainstream Christians is that's different than evangelicalism, but yeah. the, the common Christian belief in this country and in, in the world really that there's a, um, you know, an eternally conscious location of hell where people are being tormented for eternity adventism does not believe that they believe that it's an event more like like the lake of fire it's when christ comes back the wicked are cast into the lake of fire they're incinerated and once they're gone they're gone it doesn't they're annihilated it does yes it does not burn forever it's an event it's a time and place and the location is literally the earth because that's where the lake of fire occurs um so, but nonetheless, like, so I, on the one hand, I've had some people be like, oh, well, that's not that bad. It still kind of sucks though. <laughs> I mean, like, okay. I mean, great. I guess it's a, um, good that I don't have to think about being burned alive for MLA, you know, eons and eons, but like I still being burned to death doesn't sound pleasant. And as a child thinking that that's what's going to happen if you don't believe the right thing. Um, yeah, so it's still traumatizing, not to mention um, Adventism puts a lot of emphasis on um, the judgment, and uh, I, feel like I'm, I feel like I'm diverting into a whole Adventism spiel, but it, it's, it's pertinent to <laughs> my childhood trauma relating to the fear of hell and the fear of judgment. I mean, with the, the nuance notwithstanding, there's nothing like fundamental or thematic you're saying here that wasn't relevant to my Christian upbringing as a Baptist, so anyway. Yeah, so... Yeah. And um, so anyway, th yes, that, that was a big piece. That was a big piece. I feel, I felt like. Like um, judgment day. Is that what you mean? Yes. Judgment. Yes. Judgment day. And um, the other piece of it too, um, that's uh, kind of uncanny and that really adds an extra layer of anxiety that is unique to Adventism is they believe in this thing called the investigative judgment. And basically what that, well, first of all, re okay, let's rewind to 1844. Are you familiar with the great disappointment? <laughs> No. So that was a, a big religious movement that it's part of the second great awakening as far as religious history is concerned. 
but back in the early 1840s, there was a, I think he was Methodist at the time, um, preacher of an upstate New York named William Miller. And he had studied um, Daniel. Yeah, because it's based on the, it's based on Daniel, Daniel chapter eight. Uh, long story short, he basically had determined that God, Jesus, I mean, would return on the day of atonement, 1844. Um, I won't go into all of the nuances to how specifically he dated it, but trust me, I, I could do a Bible study on it still. It's still like, I still have it in my you know, autopilot memory here. But um, Daniel 8.14, though, the verse is like unto 2300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Now, there's more to it than that, but the point is 2300 days. Anyway, the end point he determined was, again, the, the Day of Atonement, so Yom Kippur on a, 1844 which, by the way, was October 22nd of 1844. Um, now, of course, Christ did not come back, hence the great disappointment. But Seventh-day Adventism was born from that particular movement. Um, and as seems to be often the case in Christianity is there's a big prophetic blunder that then turns into new theology and new movements of, oh, well, we just got it, got it wrong. And this is what actually was meant by these things. So what Adventists determined, well, they weren't Adventists at the time, but as they continued studying the Bible, is that the dating was correct, the event was wrong. The sanctuary being cleansed, they determined, did not mean Christ returning to earth. It meant Christ, who is our high priest, moving from the holy place into the most holy place. Hence, that Day of Atonement idea is still accurate, but it's talking about, again, not like the heavenly things, like the, you know, the, the model on this earth was like, it was a model for the things in the heavens and all of that. Just like, for example, the cross was the altar of sacrifice. And then anyway, so it's running with that metaphor and that understanding. Um, but at any rate, so there was going to be a point in time where the judgment is finished, but there's this brief period of time between the judgment wrapping up and Christ actually coming back. And so you wouldn't know when that would end. So this is the anxiety part that I'm getting to. The idea that, you know, you never knew when the judgment was going to be done and you would be sealed, whether you were saved or not, and you wouldn't know, you would have no way of knowing. So you better always be good because, you know, it's like you have no idea when you're going to be sealed. And, you know, that, so that was the big anxiety piece. And um, if you grew up in Adventism, they, they love their revelation seminars and they love their apocalyptic posters of the different beasts and hellfire and yeah, if you if you ever see a Revelation themed biblical poster and it has all kinds of depictions of the beasts in Revelation, that's actually the ones in Daniel too, but also the ones in Revelation. Uh, in Revelation, it, it, it's probably a Seventh Day Adventist seminar. Um, so yeah, that was that was fun, <laughs> to say the least. So yeah, just this ongoing anxiety of you could. So needless to say, Adventists do not believe in once saved, always saved. They, you absolutely needed to be vigilant. Because you, you know? could lose your salvation. Oh, absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, they wouldn't like you saying it quite so bluntly, but the reality is that is what, when they really spell out what they believe and how they believe it, like, well, that is the unavoidable consequence, though, is like, yeah, you can absolutely lose your salvation. Um, so yeah, and then that with the judgment, um, the, um, you know, potentially coming to a close, 
and by the way, what I mean by that too, is people think of judgment day as being when Christ comes back, the way Adventists would say, no, when he comes back, the judgment's already been determined. He's simply coming back to cast into the lake of fire or to gather to himself his own. It's already been determined. He's not coming back to judge. He's coming back to execute judgment. And so the judgment's happening as we speak, and it could be over at any moment. So you, again, just better make sure that you're staying right with God. Spiritually hypervigilant. Yes. Nice. So someone who already has intrusive thoughts and is ADHD, but didn't know it until I was 33, you can only imagine what that was like mentally. <laughs> what do you mean by intrusive thoughts? Intrusive thoughts are just from the perspective of anxiety, trauma. Um, so intrusive thoughts, yeah. Like, I mean, well, for me, intrusive thoughts in the religious context, which is that's where most of them came from, was probably in a religious context, but that I wouldn't be saved, that I needed to make sure I asked God for forgiveness. Um, so it, it, it almost, it honestly got to such a point where it almost became like a nervous tick of like, oh shit, I don't know when, the, when was the last time I prayed and asked for forgiveness? Like, oh, I better do that. Like, I mean, I'm talking like I was eight years old, eight or nine years old doing this. And, and I did it silently. So it was one of those things where it's like, I don't know that anybody noticed. And I was one of those kids where it's like, yeah, and I do have ADHD, but of all the different types of ADHD I don't have the hyperactivity part I have the attention deficit part like hardcore so but because I wasn't like jumping out of my seat and doing all these other things I flew under the radar <laughs> and you know I was for the most part like you know a compliant good quote good kid in school so you know nobody ever suspected anything but um oh yeah intrusive thoughts that was a big one for me <laughs> wow yeah, totally. Shoot. Okay. So um, I'm curious with the, as you've like done the work and processed through all these things and whatever, was there a point in your journey of being self-aware that you realized or you'd like identified as like, oh, I'm not a Christian anymore? Yeah, damn. When was that? When would that have been that I actually, because it's one of those things where I think you come to the conclusions that any person who's just looking at what you believe at face value could say, oh, well, that sounds like you're not a Christian, but to then get past that denial stage of my own grieving process to say that. So there was a big gap is what I'm trying to say. Right. Uh, when I actually finally was like, yeah, no, you know what? I'm not a Christian. And that's, I, I'm, and I'm okay saying that. And I have no intention of trying to reconcile anything to become one again. That probably did not happen fully until probably 2019, perhaps. And was that a moment? Was there like a conscious moment? You're like, oh yeah, that was where I crossed the line and it became real for me. Was it more of like a general, like a vague realization? Like, what was that like? It was kind of, so it came it was when I had moved to Oregon and had, and then that job simply completely turned into basically what felt like a real bait and switch kind of situation. But anyway, that's beside the point it, it felt like at that time that my life was falling apart and I had just moved across the country. Uh, nothing was going well. I already had not been in church for, I mean, I don't know, five plus years at this point, but I still had, all of my, I, I, I like hoard books. Like I don't, I'm not really a hoarder, but when it comes to books, yeah, I am. And I still had all my religious stuff. Um, 
so much Adventist, Adventist stuff, but non Adventist stuff as well. Like I had so much stuff. And that was when I actually started seriously. I was trying to downsize a lot of stuff. So part of it was just pragmatic. I, I needed to move back across the country and I really wanted to not have, I wanted to pay for a smaller sized U-Haul. That was honestly part of my motivation. <laughs> like I need to pay for a smaller truck because shit's expensive. Yeah. And um, <laughs> I got to get rid of some stuff. <laughs> um, so that was what prompted me to just force myself to start just really slashing at some of the extra, just the extra crap I had that I didn't need that I just kind of just kept holding on to because, oh, you know, maybe one day I'll miss it and maybe one day I'll want it. Um, but a lot of the books, the religious ones, um, I just, I think the, the ones that Goodwill would take, I gave to Goodwill, the ones that nobody wanted, just recycling. And in this, this part is funny because this probably still has to do with my own guilt and shame of getting rid of them. The Adventist books, the ones that were still in like good condition, and I had like a big commentary set and I, I had some other like nice sets, books that were actually worth quite a bit of money, honestly. Um, I got in touch with the pastor of the local Seventh Adventist Church out there in Klamath Falls, Oregon, and, and donated them all to his church. Um, and he was, he and his wife, I met them both. They were, I mean, very kind and pleasant people. I was concerned at the time that he would question why I was getting rid of them. And was I leaving Adventism? He, he didn't care. He didn't say anything. He was just a nice guy. Um, but, you know, I definitely was feeling very hypervigilant and defensive and still had a lot of shame around the fact that I was getting rid of all these things. And even though I wasn't like, I didn't have an online social media presence where I was like declaring any of these things yet, I definitely knew at least internally that, yeah, not only am I not an Adventist, but like, I, I'm not even, I'm not even a Christian anymore. Like it's, you know, I, I knew I wasn't an Adventist that had been, that had been kind of a slow, slow realization. But then I had also kind of convinced myself that, well, progressive Christianity looks kind of nice, kind of. And honestly, it's like, it's one of those things where you're like, you're cruising down the highway, you see the exit coming up, progressive Christianity. I'm like, yeah, I think I'll take this exit. And as I'm cruising up to the exit, I just keep driving like, yeah, actually, fuck this. No, I've seen that story before. And it looks too, and no, no, keep going. So I kind of just bypassed that whole stage. I know a lot of people have that fundamentalist to progressive. And then sometimes they stay there. And then sometimes they continue. No, I kind of just went from fundamentalist to yeah, just straight out of Christianity completely. I mean, it, it took years, but I, I never really landed in the progressive camp, to be honest. Yeah. Wow. So was there, whenever that moment was where you were conscious, like, oh, I'm not a Christian anymore. I guess my question is, what was that like? The initial, oh man. I mean, the initial part of that was, I mean, I, what am I trying to say? <laughs> it, it was hard. It was hard. It was like, I mean, it was, it was, it was, an, it, it was an, yeah. I mean, it was an existential crisis and it's one of those things where, you know, I'm always looking at things through stages of grief and other mm. clinical lenses, you know, but, where, but in the stages of grief, if you have, you know, denial, bargaining, depression, anger, and acceptance, it's like, I had been wallowing in the denial and the, in the bargaining for quite a while. Like I had been in denial and I had been in bargaining for years. And now I, I could finally voice the words like, yeah, I'm not this thing anymore. And frankly, I don't think I have been for years, but now finally saying that and hearing myself say that, then like, so then at that point, the depression hit me like a, like a freight train pretty much. 
and that was 2019 when I went back to Chicago um, at that point. And yeah, I mean, existential crisis feels like almost an understatement now. I mean, it was, it was bad. And it was in hindsight, I'm like, oh yeah, that was the depression stage of grief, but like not trying to overanalyze or rationalize it and just, you know, make it this analytical thing. Like I, I can see it clearly what it was, but oh hell, it was, it was hell. I mean, I was absolutely like, I mean, I wouldn't say I was suicidal to be clear, but I mean, it was like one step shy of that, of like just having no meaning, like what the fuck is life? <laughs> like what even matters anymore? It doesn't even fucking matter what I do. Like who cares? Who gives a fuck anymore? It, like that's kind of where I was at. Wow. And so, I mean, I, that whole next year, I was like of life. I was just going through the motions of just one foot in front of the other, staying alive. But like, like you'd, you'd wake up and be like, What's yeah. The yeah, literally. Like, who really gives a fuck? Because nothing matters. <laughs> Andrew, that's terrifying. Yeah, it was. I hate that. It was, it was terrifying. It, uh -huh. I mean, yeah. And um, yeah, it's, um, and the thing is, is in my, in the past, <clears throat> ironically, when I was more involved in the church, I had been suicidal, not to the point of like attempting or to the point of really even having a plan or anything too serious in that regard. But like, I like definitely had had those thoughts had you know those had kind of been there for a while and I actually was kind of scared that those thoughts would come back at, back in 2019 but they didn't I'm still not sure why it's almost like I didn't even have the motivation to care enough to think about that either like I literally had no motivation to give a fuck about anything <laughs> um and I moved into Chicago just in time for winter um this was and this was weird because they got an early snow on Halloween 2019 so bad that they actually canceled Halloween events all over Chicago and Kenosha and Racine which I actually lived on the Wisconsin side so I was like right up there next to Kenosha um yeah and it was like so yeah all that was canceled you just kind of hunkered down and stayed home and then about January February of the next year COVID started so um and I was working mobile crisis so I was in hospitals in northwest Chicago and I still remember <laughs> I still remember that was, I mean, that was such a nightmare, but that's anyway, just adding to the layers of stress, but it's weird. I, um, I, part of the trauma work I've been doing is when I am in under acute, like distress, I am very good at compartmentalizing and dissociating. So actually I, it, it's it one of those things where it has bit me in the ass in the big picture in terms of like my own personal life of showing up in relationships, being grounded, being present, being in touch with myself. But when it comes to being able to effectively do a job like mobile crisis, I was actually pretty good at it because you, you couldn't rattle me, but it's not because I was regulated and well-adjusted. It was actually because I was so damn disembodied. It's like, I'm so dissociated right now. Yeah. You, you can't really get a reaction out of me, but um, yeah. So it was one thing after another. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, that's quite the barrage of like significant negative impacts. Okay, so this concludes part one of my interview with Andrew. Wasn't that fun? <laughs> Jeez. Um, so you can, uh, we'll provide his handle below so you can go find him on TikTok or Instagram, whichever of those two platforms you follow people on. He does a great job there. Uh, really good, consistent content. And then also just want to check in, have you checked out Numa Plus, uh, my private streaming platform where I'm providing exclusive content for the people in that group? If you've not considered it or checked it out, the link is below. I would like to encourage you to come join me over there. We've got some really good stuff coming out. 
All right. Good to see everybody. Thanks for being here. See you next time. Listen, there's more where this came from. If you want to see how deep this rabbit hole goes, check out MikeMyashiro.com.